Welcome to Forecast, the Foreshadow podcast, seeking glimpses of heaven on earth through conversations about people's lives and work. I'm Josh, the editor of Foreshadow, a digital literary magazine of work that points to the kingdom of God. Today, I will continue exploring the book Thomas Merton on the Vocation of Writing, edited by Robert Inchausty. Last week, I covered major themes in the first chapter entitled Writing as a Spiritual Calling. If you haven't already, I encourage you to listen to that episode. Although I intend each episode to stand alone, by listening to them in order you will be able to identify some emerging themes. Today we'll look at Chapter 2, The Christian Writer in the Modern World. But first, a brief summary of what we covered last time. Chapter 1 can be organized into two main sections one on vocation, and the other on the ministry of writing. About vocation, Merton discusses various dimensions of vocation. First and foremost, he describes that all of us are called to become new creations in Christ and to participate in his work of making all things new. Merton also explains how some vocations are inherent, as writing has been for him, whereas some vocations are specific tasks that people are given for a season, and even other vocations are callings for life, and perhaps external callings we might see it, such as the religious vocations of being a monastic or marriage. There seems to be a hierarchy in Merton's view of these vocations. In short, we prioritize serving God first, and then next are the people closest to us, such as our family, or in his case, his brothers in his order, and then Following on from that are our occupations or other tasks that we are given to do, in his case, writing. Finally, Merton discusses how one's vocation can encompass one's entire life, and some of these themes he will continue to develop in this next chapter. About the ministry of writing, Merton identifies in chapter 1 three purposes of writing. Writing as a path to holiness or transformation in Christ, writing as a form of teaching others, and writing as a form of evangelism. Merton also explains the importance of pursuing excellence in writing. Then, importantly, he identifies two competing motivations for writing. We can either write out of selfish ambition or out of godly ambition, and it's pretty clear which one is best. Merton also writes about the need for the writer to themselves experience deep inner transformation in Christ, out of which the writing will bear fruit. In other words, it's not enough to simply master the craft of writing itself if the writer isn't experiencing an ongoing transformation. Finally, Merton points out some tensions between the vocation of the artist or writer and the vocation of the monastic. In particular, he asks how it's possible to put into words a mystical experience, since such an experience goes beyond human speech. Now, before jumping into chapter 2, I'd like to point out two main themes in this chapter. The first is that, continuing our counting from the previous chapter, Merton identifies a fourth purpose for writing, and that is writing as a form of prophecy, or speaking the truth, God's truth, and thus serving as a witness to life. Merton also adds another element to the writing vocation. The poet's task, he says, is to restore language. 
We can summarize these two themes by saying that the vocation of the writer is telling the truth. Merton explains other purposes of writing and other dimensions to the writing vocation, and further develops some of his other points from the previous chapter. So as we begin our dive into chapter 2, we will first look at Merton's describing the writer as a prophet. The first excerpt comes from Heraclitus, a study, which Merton wrote in 1960. And Heraclitus, I'm not sure if I'm pronouncing that right, but Heraclitus was a Greek philosopher who lived, who was born in about 540 BC in Ephesus. And, um, he, and so Merton writes about Heraclitus and how he serves as an image of a prophet and, and the image of the writer as well as a prophet. And so this is what Merton writes. The aristocratic contempt of Heraclitus for the conventional verbalizing of his fellow citizens was something other than a pose or a mad reflex of wounded sensibility. It was a prophetic manifestation of intransigent honesty. He refused to hold his peace and spoke out with angry concern for truth. He who had seen the one was no longer permitted to doubt, to hedge, to compromise, and to flatter. To treat his intuition as one among many opinions would have been inexcusable. False humility was an infidelity to his deepest self and a betrayal of the fundamental insights of his life. It would have been, above all, a betrayal of those whom he could not effectively contact except by the shock of paradox. Heraclitus took the same stand as Isaias, who was commanded by God to blind the eyes of the people by speaking to them in words that were too simple, too direct, too uncompromising to be acceptable. It is not given to men of compromise to understand parables, for as Heraclitus remarked, when the things that are right in front of them are pointed out to them, they do not pay attention, though they think they do. So here it seems that Merton is saying that instead of speaking through parables or stories, Heraclitus uh, spoke to the people in his life through uh, direct truth. And otherwise, any other such form of communication would have been a betrayal of his integrity. Merton goes on to say, This is the tragedy which most concerns Heraclitus, and which should concern us even more than it did him. The fact that the majority of men think they see and do not. They believe they listen, but they do not hear. They are absent when present, because in the act of seeing and hearing, they substitute the clichés of familiar prejudice for the new and unexpected truth that is being offered to them. They complacently imagine they are receiving a new light, but in the very moment of apprehension they renew their obsession with the old darkness, which is so familiar that it, and it alone, appears to them to be light. So Merton seems to be describing how people, how we, oftentimes think we are learning something new, but when the message comes to us directly, we can only really receive it with that which we already think we know, and that blinds us from the truth that, uh, that would otherwise teach and change us. Merton doesn't say this, but I suppose 
the one of the solutions to this would be having such an open mind that one is aware of one's own inability to understand the truth fully and perhaps in that openness one can then um, receive and and understand new information at least uh, to a less filtered than before however such a position requires humility on the part of the learner um, in recognizing their own limitations and that they don't have all of the answers and which is something that usually we don't tend to have that's the end of that excerpt but I wonder what Merton would say as a solution what can writers do to communicate to people who are even unaware of their blindness uh, metaphorical blindness to people who are unaware of the fact that they are unable to receive and understand the truth perhaps only God is able to change our hearts our eyes our ears to make them receptive to the truth another place we might turn is through the use of parables which Merton touches upon he says that Heraclitus did not use parables because they would have compromised his message but perhaps that's not always the case for the writer or the artist or the communicator or the prophet perhaps parables can be used as a tool to convey a message but in a veiled truth so the truth is still intact but the parable uh, conveys it in such a way that the listener will then be able to receive it in a way that they could not receive the direct truth this reminds me of something that the poet emily dickinson once said in one of her poems in which she wrote tell all the truth but tell it slant success in circuit lies I think this approach is one that storytellers often use to convey a difficult message. They will perhaps couch it with a story or with uh, uh, humor in such a way that will make it palatable and so that the listener can hear it with fresh ears or see it with, with fresh eyes. And that way, maybe that'll go around the tendency to think that the listener already knows the truth and can't learn anything from the messenger. This is what happens in the Bible when after David commits a sin by um, committing adultery with Bathsheba and uh, summoning Bathsheba's husband Uriah to war in an attempt to kill Uriah, which succeeds. Soon after that, as we read in the book of 2 Samuel, the Lord sends the prophet Nathan to David but rather than confronting David directly with what he had done, the prophet Nathan tells him a story, a parable. And this is a story of two men in a city, a rich man and a poor man. And the poor man has nothing but one little lamb that he loves and cherishes. And the rich man has lots of sheep and cattle, but in order to feed uh, a traveler, instead of taking any of his own sheep or cattle, he takes the lamb from the poor man and cooks it for his visitor. And as soon as he hears this story, David becomes very angry. He's engaged emotionally in the story. And he tells Nathan that the, the rich man should die. And then Nathan confronts David with the truth and says that you are that rich man. And he confronts David with his sin and... Um, and a message from God that God will bring trouble against David for what David has done. 
And then David says to Nathan, I have sinned against the Lord. Maybe the Lord sent Nathan to tell David a story because he knew that if Nathan had simply directly told David the truth about what he had done, David would not have responded with a contrite heart. But through the story, the parable, um, that vehicle was able to go around David's defenses and um, enable him to have the response of repentance upon seeing the truth. This technique of writing parables and stories is something that the Southern American, well, not from South America, but from the American South, author Flannery O'Connor understood in her book Mystery and Manners. She writes, When you assume that your audience holds the same beliefs that you do, you can relax and use more normal means of talking to it. When you have to assume that it does not, then you have to make your vision apparent by shock. To the hard of hearing, you shout, and for the almost blind, you draw large and startling figures. I hope that um, after going through this book, Echoing Silence, we can go through Flannery O'Connor's book, Mystery and Manners, and unpack this and other thoughts further. But I'm just sharing that here to emphasize that perhaps um, one way around this problem that Merton identifies of the prophet and how people do not listen to the direct truth is telling parables and telling parables so that uh, pe the truth can then be delivered in a way that people might recognize it and listen and respond in a way that they may not do if the truth was told directly to them without um, without story or without humor or without these other forms that can carry the story. Now, I know that in this quote uh, that I read, Merton also quotes the book of I Isaiah, in which he is commanded by God to, quote, blind the eyes of the people, and that through parables. And so there seems to be two uses of parables. Um, one is the way that I've been describing, as parables can help to convey the truth, when otherwise the direct truth would be blinding. And then there's this sense in Isaiah in which parables themselves can actually be a form of blinding people from the truth because they may not understand the parables. So I'm just saying that there seems to be two uses of parables, um, but uh, that doesn't mean that every use of parables is um, blinding, as we saw in the example of the prophet Nathan and other stories that are told in the Bible by prophets and by other teachers, parables and stories can be used to convey truth in a way that the truth may not be received as effectively otherwise. This next excerpt comes from a letter that Merton wrote to a Nicaraguan poet in 1962. He said, I am definitely not a harmonious part of this society, but the fact that I can be considered a part of it at all is testimony to the fact that there does still remain at least a minimum of freedom and the power to speak one's own mind, even though what one says is not always acceptable. This seems to me is likely to be the place of the Christian writer and intellectual everywhere in the world. I think we have to be very careful of our honesty and our refusal to be swept away by large groups 
into monolithic systems. We have to guard and defend our eccentricity even when we are reminded that it is an expendable luxury, a self-indulgence. It is not, and those who try to make us yield our right to think as we see fit secretly suffer and are ashamed when we yield to their enticements or to their pressures. Even though they have no other way of praising us than by taking us so seriously that they silence us, this itself is the witness we have to bear to truth. So just following on from the previous excerpt, even though I was suggesting that sometimes a writer might use parable to convey the truth in a more palatable and acceptable way, I think this points out that the truth never itself changes, and the writer or the prophet or the artist themselves also never fundamentally change. And I really appreciate Merton's writing this, and I can really see his integrity coming through in these lines, in which he describes that he, as a Christian writer, as an intellectual, uh, he is different than the world. And as Christians, we are different than the world. But though we might be tempted to change ourselves or our message so that the world might accept us more, that would be unfaithful to God. And that ultimately, by maintaining our integrity, we are actually doing for the world what it needs for us to do. As Merton writes, even though they have no other way of praising us, than by taking us so seriously that they silence us. So it's to me that sounds like the world is actually praising the artist, the prophet, for their integrity, for their witness to the truth um, by a roundabout means of silencing them because they know that the truth will change them and they know that the message is true and that's why they want to silence it. And so the, the role of the prophet isn't primarily to come up with a message that people want to hear. That's what a false prophet normally does. But rather, the role of the prophet is to witness to the truth. And sometimes that means speaking the truth to power. Um, and so that we see that in the next excerpt here. Um, he writes, Have you and I forgotten that our vocation as innocent bystanders and the very condition of our terrible innocence is to do what the child did, and keep on saying the king is naked, at the cost of being condemned criminals? And then later on, If the child had not been there, they would all have been madmen or criminals. It was the child's cry that saved them. This reminds me of John the Baptist and Herod Antipas. When Herod Antipas divorced his wife and married his brother's sister, he was committing various transgressions against the law, and John the Baptist spoke out against him. And eventually, this led to John the Baptist's death. Um, but I find it intriguing whenever I read that story in the Gospels that Herod still liked hearing John the Baptist speak. Even though John the Baptist uh, said things that challenged him and challenged the things he did, I wonder if perhaps Herod uh, appreciated hearing John the Baptist's words because he knew that on a deep level what John was saying was the truth, and if, he, if Herod would listen, 
and follow that truth, it would mean his own salvation. And it doesn't seem that he does, in the end, do that. But it, it does seem that he was aware that in John the Baptist, there was a message that would give him life. And so I think that's a, an image of a prophet, of a writer, of an artist with the, uh, the Christian message and with uh, the gospel, proclaiming it to that might challenge people in power, that might challenge the listeners. And although it's usually a difficult thing to be disruptive in such a way, ultimately it's, for, it's also for the benefit of those people because it is only by accepting the truth and turning to life that one can be saved and that one can receive the fullness of life that God has intended for them. Whether or not they listen or follow, that will be their choice, but it's the responsibility of the prophet to present them with that choice by giving them the truth and the message of the truth. And then Merton writes about how, from one perspective, the artist, the writer, the poet, the prophet might be considered by some to be useless. He writes, what is the use of art? The artist must serenely defend his right to be completely useless. It is better to produce absolutely no work of art at all than to do what can be cynically used. To unpack this, I want to read another excerpt that he writes from an informal talk that he delivered in Calcutta in 1968, and this is on irrelevance. Are monks and hippies and poets relevant? No, we are deliberately irrelevant. We live with an ingrained irrelevance which is proper to every human being. The marginal man accepts the basic irrelevance of the human condition, an, irre an irrelevance which is manifested above all by the fact of death. The marginal person, the monk, the displaced person, the prisoner, all these people live in the presence of death, which calls into question the meaning of life. He struggles with the fact of death in himself, trying to seek something deeper than death, because there is something deeper than death, and the office of the monk or the marginal person, the meditative person or the poet, is to go beyond death even in this life, to go beyond the dichotomy of life and death, and to be, therefore, a witness to life. I like how Merton seems to turn the question, what is the use of art, on its head. He seems to be saying that, of all things, art, perhaps true art, is the most relevant of activities we can do, because in the face of death, Everything is irrelevant except for that which witnesses to that life which is beyond death. And that's what art, true art, seems to be trying to do. It seems to be trying to point us to that eternal life, to that new creation that we are called to, to embody and to participate in. And that is what the monk, the artist, the poet is seeking to do in their, in their work. And to people who don't have that vision of the new creation, for people for whom this life is the only life there is, that work and that task must indeed seem irrelevant. But for those who can see beyond death to the life that 
we believe Christ um, has offered to us and has paved the way for us to enter into, then that is actually the most important and relevant thing that one can do. Uh, that is, witnessing to and embodying and participating in that life. And so the, the task of the writer, of the prophet, is to be a kind of mirror or a reflection of that light, that, that light beyond this world in another dimension, but which comes to us through Christ um, to be a witness to that light and to that truth into this world. And that light, that truth might seem to some to be irrelevant, to others it might seem to be shocking and jarring because of the directness of its truth, um, like King Herod being um, challenged by the words of John and yet also mysteriously being attracted to it because of the truth that it brings. But no matter what, the, the role of the artist and the writer and the prophet is to be faithful witnesses to that light, to that life, and to that new creation. And even if the world considers us to be irrelevant, we know that uh, that, that is the most important thing we can do. St. Irenaeus once said, The glory of God is a human being fully alive. And I think... That's another way to say what Merton is saying, that the, the writer's task is to themselves become fully alive in Christ and also through their message, through their writing, through their art, through their work, to uncover that life that is within all of us and to somehow peel back the layers that have blinded us from that and to restore that life in us. And in the process, that changes how we see the world and even the language we use to describe the world. And so that takes us to the next theme in which Merton describes one dimension of the poet's vocation, which is to restore language. He writes this in the context of our culture, which he seems to describe as distorting language through advertisements, through propaganda, uh, which ultimately distort the human person. So I'll just go through some of his various writing on restoring language. In one writing called Message to Poets, he writes, What characterizes our century is not so much that we have to rebuild our world as that we have to rethink it. This amounts to saying that we have to give it back its language. The vocabularies that are proposed to us are of no use to us, and there is no point in a Byzantine exercise upon themes of grammar. We need a profound questioning which will not separate us from the sufferings of men. And so he seems to suggest that part of this restoration of language is questioning that will enable us to understand more directly and empathetically, the suffering of people. And so this suggests that the language we use through which we understand the world often alienates us from the suffering of others. Our task is to speak and to think in such a way that we are aware of the suffering that others are going through. And then later he writes, Now let us turn elsewhere to the language of advertisement, 
which at times approaches the mystic and charismatic heights of glossolalia. Here, too, utterance is final. No doubt there are insinuations of dialogue, but really there is no dialogue with an advertisement, just as there was no dialogue between the sirens and the crews they lured to disaster on the rocks. There is nothing to do but be hypnotized and drown, unless you have somehow acquired a fortunate case of deafness. But who can guarantee that he is deaf enough? Meanwhile, it is the vocation of the poet, or anti-poet, not to be deaf to such things, but to apply his ear intently to their corrupt charms. So as poets, as prophets, we are called to not close our ears to the lies and the propaganda of the world, but to be attentive to it so that we can be aware of when it might try to change our way of thinking. And Merton then presents a, a, an example of an advertisement from the New Yorker magazine, and he describes basically that the advertisement is telling a lie, that it's using language in a meaningless way to evoke a, an emotional response. But the poet who has written this advertisement has done it in such a craftful and, art and a masterful way that it succeeds for many people in, um, in capturing their attention and in capturing ultimately their money and their devotion, which is dangerous. And then in his writing, Auschwitz, A Family Camp, Merton similarly describes how language was distorted and um, misused and uh, became a lie um, in Nazi Germany. And so, um, for example, work makes free, the sign over the gate of Auschwitz, tells with grim satisfaction the awful literal truth, here we work people to death, and behind it the dreadful metaphysical admission, for us there is only one freedom, death. To the bath, said the sign pointing to the gas chambers, you will be purified of that dirty thing, your life, and as a matter of fact, the gas chambers and crematories were kept spotlessly clean. Nothing was left of them, the victims, not even a speck of dust on the armatures. Assigned to harvest duty, this, in the record of an SS man, meant he had been posted to Auschwitz. The double meaning of harvest was doubtless not random. It has an apocalyptic ring. What Merton writes about the deformation of language due to propaganda, advertisements, and other sources reminds me of something that author Madeline Lengel has written in her book, Walking on Water, and I think that her words succinctly describe what Merton is also saying. She's, uh, at first, she's describing the importance of being named. For her, our name is an important part of our identity, and the more we learn about ourselves, the more we are able to more wisely live in the world. And so she writes, we cannot name or be named without language. If our vocabulary dwindles to a few shop-worn words, we are setting ourselves up for takeover by a dictator. When language becomes exhausted, our freedom dwindles. We cannot think. We do not recognize danger. 
injustice strikes us as no more than the way things are. In dictatorships, teachers are suspect, writers are suspect, because people who use words are able to work out complex ideas to see injustice, and perhaps even to try to do something about it. Simply being able to read the Bible in their own language made some suspect. I might even go to the extreme of declaring that the deliberate diminution of vocabulary by a dictator or an advertising copywriter is anti-Christian. And so, being able to be aware of the language we use and the language that's used around us can help us in what Lengel calls our vocation of naming and being named more fully. And so it seems for Merton, we have to be first aware of how our society, how the world shapes and, uh, and disfigures language and, and uses language to tell lies. And then the, it's the role of the writer to, to reshape language through telling the truth and through crafting poems, stories, prayers, various other forms of art in such a way that reflects the truth and conveys the life that is beyond death. So now I would like to go through some of the other dimensions of vocation and purposes of writing that Merton describes in this chapter. What I had just spoken about regarding the writer as a prophet and telling the truth were, was the main theme of this chapter. And um, I'd like to mention as well on that point that I think that's something that really comes clearly across in Merton's writing, his commitment to the truth and to integrity. In a lot of uh, discussions on art and theology, I often read or see or hear people talking about the importance of beauty and how beauty can compel people to become closer to God and come closer to, to life and, um, and to understand the reality in a way different than ration, rationality can, can provide. But um, Merton doesn't, at least in these chapters, seem to talk much about beauty, as, as important as that is, as much as truth, I think. And so I think this is a, a helpful complement to that conversation on art and theology. And that is how the artist and the writer, the, the prophet, the poet, that they must be committed to telling the truth and to being witnesses to the truth and to the life. And certainly, as others describe, this can and should be done in a beautiful way, in a way that will 
attract people to the message. And that's what I think part of what Flannery O'Connor uh, and others who write stories and parables would say. Uh, um, Madeleine Lengel comes to mind, the fiction and even nonfiction writer, um, Madeleine Lengel, who, who wrote that uh, Christians must share art um, as a light so lovely that will compel people to, to the message and to ultimately to the God who is behind all of creation. I think what Merton offers is the prophetic commitment to the truth and even to speaking the truth to power and to challenging the listeners in such a way that they will, with God's help, respond with repentance, which is not always a reaction that one expects when one is faced with beauty, but it is often what one expects to happen when one is faced with truth, at least hopefully. So in the last chapter, I pointed out how one of the uh, elements to writing as a form of ministry that Merton describes is this dichotomy between selfish ambition versus godly ambition. And he develops that tension or that dichotomy in this chapter. And so now I'd like to point out a few places where he points out the purpose or the anti-purpose of writing or the motivations that can either help a Christian writer or actually thwart their writing. This first one comes from The Wisdom of the Desert, which he wrote in 1960. A certain brother came once to Abbot Theodore of Fermi and spent three days begging him to let him hear a word. The abbot, however, did not answer him, and he went off sad. So a disciple said to Abbot Theodore, Father, why did you not speak to him? Now he has gone off sad. The elder replied, Believe me, I spoke no word to him, because he is a traitor in words, and seeks glory, and seeks to glory in the words of another. I'm not sure exactly what this story means, but it does seem clear to me that the person who came to Abbot Theodore, the, the brother who was seeking a word, was doing so out of selfish ambition rather than out of godly ambition. And that's why the abbot did not give him a word. He says he was a traitor in words, T-R-A-D-E-R, -E and sought to glory in the words of another. It just causes me to springboard off of this in my thoughts and to think about how, as a writer, as myself perhaps a traitor in words to some degree, writing and journalism was something I studied in university, and I studied writing further as a form of ministry after that, it can be easy to seek glory in the words of another or in the writing that I do, in seeing my name printed when I've written an article of some kind. And I think that could be a temptation for writers to, to do so for the, for the sole sake of publishing and, and um, getting one's name out there. I think this story can teach me and maybe teach us that, that we need to be seeking the truth, that we need to be seeking that transformation even more than publishing and getting our name out there and even more than excelling at the craft of writing, as good as that is, as good as it is to practice something and do it well, 
that there's a deeper purpose, and that purpose is to uh, to convey uh, uh, the message of the gospel, the good news of the new creation, and to seek the glory of Jesus more than the glory of anyone else, including ourselves. In other words, our source must be God, and um, the source and the motivation for our writing should be God, and the source for our creativity should also be God. And uh, Merton writes about something related to that later in his Theology of Creativity. He writes, Since there is no genuine creativity apart from God, the man who attempts to be a creator outside of God and independent of him is forced to fall back on magic. The sin of the wizard is not so much that he usurps and exercises a real preternatural power, but that his postures travesty the divine by degrading man's freedom in absurd and servile manipulations of reality. The dignity of man is to stand before God on his own feet, alive, conscious, alert to the light that has been placed in him, and perfectly obedient to that light. And so I think for Christian writers, the, the key here is to orient and reorient ourselves towards the light, towards God. And with that orientation, we can then create through God's help and through God's power rather than apart from God. And being such orientated to God, we are also no longer so obsessed with getting our own name out there um, and publishing or um, writing for selfish reasons, but for God and for God's kingdom. Merton writes later on in his work, Answers on Art and Freedom, The problem arises when art ceases to be honest work and becomes instead a way to self-advertisement and success when the writer or painter uses his art merely to sell himself. It is an article of faith, in Western society at least, that a poet or painter is by nature more interesting than other people, and, God knows, everybody wants in the worst way to be interesting. I think this is a very timely message in a time when people are constantly uploading photos, blog posts, podcast episodes on the internet. And I can certainly relate to this. And it's a question that I think I can and I need to ask myself when I'm even something like this, putting together this podcast episode. Am I doing this uh, to promote myself, to somehow obtain success in some way? Or am I doing it in the pursuit and in the service of the truth? Am I doing it in the service of God? And um, if I am doing it for God, then I can step aside. It doesn't, it's not about me. It's about the message. It's about the, the heart of what I'm doing. And so this is, I think, a very helpful challenge, to me at least. And so again, perhaps a helpful place to turn is the transformation that's required inside of me, inside of us, in order to write for God. And this picks up on a theme that Merton has written about in a previous chapter, uh, how the transformation is required and how silence precedes speech and writing. And so to, so now we'll look at some 
excerpts that illustrate that theme. This one again comes from The Wisdom of the Desert. Theophilus of Holy Memory, Bishop of Alexandria, journeyed to Skeet, and the brethren coming together said to Abbot Pambo, Say a word or two to the bishop, that his soul may be edified in this place. The elder replied, If he is not edified by my silence, there is no hope that he will be edified by my words. I think that's a powerful story that stands well enough on its own, so I will not try to describe or explain it, but maybe let the silence that follows that story speak for itself. In this next excerpt, Merton writes that it is only when we resemble God through our acts of love and selflessness that we can then be truly creative. The likeness of God in man is fully restored when man's freedom is perfectly united with the divine freedom, and when, consequently, man acts in all things as God acts, or rather when God and man act purely and simply as one. Since God is love, then for man to be restored to the likeness of God, all his acts must be pure and disinterested love, lacking all taint of that proprium, common property, which makes him aware of himself as a separate, insecure subject of inordinate needs, which he seeks to satisfy at somebody else's expense. Creativity becomes possible insofar as man can forget his limitations and his selfhood and lose himself in abandonment to the immense creative power of a love too great to be seen or comprehended. This goes back to something I said in the previous episode that my professor of writing and ministry once said, and that's the importance of following the Holy Spirit, and that being the most important thing a Christian writer can do, even more important than writing, because then the Holy Spirit might then lead one to write in a way that God intends, or God may lead one to do something else. But the important thing is to be following God. And so here what Merton is saying is similar, that what we need is to be resting in and trusting in the love that God has for us. And it is only when we have such a trust in God that we can then know and walk into the acts and the creativity and the works that God has prepared for us to do. If we are trying frantically to find those things and trying to, for instance, write loads of books because we think that, um, that that's what God wants us to do, but we are not connected to the source, we are not connected to God's love, then that work will probably be in vain because we're not drawing upon the true source of our strength. The, the love that God has for us. Instead, we're, we're drawing upon something else, whether that be our pride or our fear or, or whatever. And, and so that is not bound to bear fruit. Merton seems to also identify a connection between creativity and suffering. He writes, 
we see the creative role of suffering. This is very important. It is the reply to the secular and demonic overemphasis on the individual, his self-fulfillment in art, for its own sake. Here, on the contrary, we see that the cross is the center of the new creation, the tree of life, instead of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. He who has approached the tree of the knowledge of good and evil has tasted the intoxicating fruit of his own special excellence, but he dies the death of frustration. He becomes the prisoner of his own gifts, and he sticks to his own excellence, as if it were flypaper. There is no joy for him because he is alienated from life, love, and communion in creativity by his own demonic self-assertion, which automatically involves a rejection of suffering, of dependence, of charity, and of obedience. On the contrary, it is the renunciation of our false self, the emptying of self in the likeness of Christ, that brings us to the threshold of that true creativity in which God himself, the Creator, works in and through us. The fact that the Christian renounces his own limited ends and satisfactions in order to achieve something greater than he can see or understand means the sacrifice of immediate, visible results. But it also means that the efficacy of his action becomes lasting as well as universal. Such creativity does not stop with a little ephemeral success here and there. It reaches out to the ends of time, and to the limits of the universe. So here Merton connects the vocation that we are all given with the cross. And he says that just as Christ died on the cross and was raised to new life, so we too must empty ourselves and receive new life. And in so doing, in so laying down what we think we ought to be doing, um, laying down our demonic self-assertion, he says, renouncing our own limited ends and satisfactions, when we do that, we are then participating in a creative act, in God's creative act, in the new creation that Christ is bringing about. And such acts have ripple effects throughout eternity. And so the creative work that we are called to may include, but is certainly not limited to writing. It can include things like washing the dishes, cutting the grass, pulling weeds, giving a word of encouragement. But all of these examples are just examples, and they might even limit what Merton's trying to say. I think what he's really saying is that we have to fully show up in our life. We have to live the life we have been given as fully as Christ lived his life. And that's another connection to the cross. And that is that um, when, when the Son of God took on human form in Jesus, he knew that that would involve not just the joys of life, not just the, the happy times of being with his friends, of celebrating weddings, but also the suffering, and the suffering ultimately of the cross. But Christ chose that, and he chose to step into that life, into our world, and to take upon that death. 
and he knew that he would also overcome that death. And so bringing about a, a more full life for us. And so we too are called to live fully into the life he has given us, to be present where we are, to, to seek to bring the light of Christ in the world in which we live, in the communities, the people that God has given to us to, to live with and to share life with. And that is our cross, and that is also our path to resurrection. And it is in living that life that we participate in the creativity of God and in the new creation. And so that leads to another theme about vocation that Merton writes about in this chapter, and that is that we are called to be who we were uniquely made to be. We were called to do that which only we can do because God made us to be those people, that person. And God made no one else to be us. God gave no one else but us the, the gifts, the limitations, the abilities, the people, the circumstances that we are in. Only we can fulfill that. And so I'll continue from the excerpts that I had most recently read from. This may sound like hyperbole, but this is creativity in a new and spiritual dimension, which is its full Christian dimension. And this applies not only to the artist, but to every Christian. To adapt Kumaraswamy's phrase, one might say, the creative Christian is not a special kind of Christian, but every Christian has his own creative work to do, his own part in the mystery of the new creation. Would that we were all more aware of this. Our awareness would produce a climate that would have a special meaning for the artist. The way for sacred art to become more creative is not just for the artist to study new and fashionable trends and try to apply them to sacred or symbolic themes. It is for the artist to enter deeply into his Christian vocation, his part in the work of restoring all things in Christ. And so, even more important than studying the skill or technique of a certain form of art, or studying the history and the creative trends of art in the church or in the world, the role of the Christian is to step into our life and to step into our vocation. And in so doing, we will naturally produce the creative acts, whether they be works of art, whether they be works of service, whatever they may be, that will result in transforming this world and in participating in Christ's work of making all things new. And then Merton writes something important, but this is not his responsibility alone. This is the responsibility of the whole church and everybody in it. So this is another dimension to vocation, and that's the communion and the community or communal element. And I think when we talk about vocation, it's often done in a very individualistic way. And it has to be because, to some degree, because we are individuals. But I appreciate this line from Merton because it reminds us that we're not in this alone, that as Christians we are part of a body, which is the church, 
and that we also have a responsibility and the, the joy of encouraging others and in equipping others and helping others to fulfill their own vocations, helping them to see perhaps blind spots that they can't see in themselves, encouraging them to, to serve in a way that they might be too timid to serve, thinking about the needs of others. And this in itself, I'm sure, is one of our vocations as well. And now before we finish today's episode, I would like to point out three purposes of writing that Merton identifies in this chapter, two of which we've already covered. The first one is writing as a path to holiness, or writing, clearing, and making a way to transformation in Christ. Merton writes, Our studies in writing should, by their very nature, contribute to our contemplation, at least remotely, and contemplation, in turn, should be able to find expression in channels laid open for it and deepened by familiarity with the fathers of the church. So this is one element of more of a personal writing that can help us develop our faith, our walk with God, as we write, as we reflect on what we read, whether that be readings in, from the scriptures or reading from the church fathers or other spiritual texts. The second purpose for writing that we've covered before is writing to teach from experience or writing to impart wisdom. In The Wisdom of the Desert, he describes the word that the elders would give to those who came to them as imparting wisdom. He says, Those who came to the desert seeking salvation asked the elders for a word that would help them to find it, a verbum salutis, a word of salvation. The answers were not intended to be general, universal prescriptions. Rather, they were originally concrete and precise keys to particular doors that had to be entered at a given time by given individuals. I think this points out two important things, at least. One is that, again, that we are required to have a transformation and we are required to be changed and become more mature before we can then give others a life-giving message. The people who gave these words of salvation were elders, people who had, had lived long lives of service to Christ, of much um, sacrifice, and of much maturity. And, and I think, speaking for myself, I am not at that point where I can give such a word. However, maybe... God can still use us to the degree to which we have been transformed. And so that my, so in that case, we can see our writing as a way to offer what limited wisdom we might have. The second important point is how those words that the elders gave were for specific people in mind. They weren't general universal prescriptions, as Merton writes. And so I think what this says to writers is that we have to know our audience. We have to fashion our writing to those to whom we are targeting our writing. That'll most likely be more than one person. Hopefully we are writing for more than one purpose person, although that isn't a bad thing. One person is, is important. 
but we have to know what our audience, whether it be one person or many people, the questions they ask. Because whatever wisdom we might give uh, must be in response to a question they are asking. In this next excerpt from Baptism in the Forest, Wisdom and Initiation in William Faulkner, Merton writes about how wisdom is not just something we speculate about, but it's something practical. It's something that must be lived. And unless we live it, we don't actually have it. He writes that wisdom can't be learned from a book. However, in this excerpt that I will read, he points out that imagination and creative writing can provide wisdom. And, and so, in some way, uh, although maybe wisdom cannot be learned from a book, one has to live it, a book can still lay a foundation for wisdom to then be lived. Let me read the quote. I might say at once that creative writing and imaginative criticism provide a privileged area for wisdom in the modern world. At times, one feels they do so even more than current philosophy and theology. The literary and creative current of thought that has been enriched and stimulated by depth psychology, comparative religion, social anthropology, existentialism, and the renewal of classical, patristic, biblical, and mystical studies has brought in a sapiential harvest, which is not to be despised. Although here Merton seems to be talking more about the role of the imagination and creative writing and how that's influenced academia, what this makes me think about is also how creative writing and literature can teach us things that other academic su subjects um, can't often teach, such as philosophy and theology, when they are going through a systematic explanation of doctrines um, that often doesn't have the same effect on us than does a story in which someone lives through, um, overcomes a temptation or a challenge and, and must meet that challenge with courage and with strength. In other words, we can learn from characters of fiction, or even nonfiction, but when a story tells the choices that a character makes, the mistakes they make, the, the triumphs that they have, we can gain wisdom from reading about their experience. And although we need to still put that wisdom into practice before it's truly become our own story, that wisdom is important in laying that foundation for us, in seeing how other people have lived through the imagination, through reading a story, we can learn from what other people have experienced. This is something that Madeleine Lengel writes about in Walking on Water, which I hope to also discuss in a future episode. And she writes that through reading and identifying ourselves with characters of fiction, and through learning and uh, gaining wisdom from their choices, we are named by those characters. And some part of our identity is given to us, and we can grow through learning about what they go through. And the final purpose of writing that Merton describes in this chapter is writing and communication as communion. And I believe we touched on this in the previous 
episode as well. But here, Merton explicitly writes about writing as a form of communion. He writes, True communication on the deepest level is more than a simple sharing of ideas, of conceptual knowledge, or formulated truth. The kind of communication that is necessary on this deep level must also be communion beyond the level of words, a communion in authentic experience which is shared not only on a pre-verbal level, but on a post-verbal level. Elsewhere, he writes, And the deepest level of communication is not communication, but communion. It is wordless. It is beyond words, and it is beyond speech, and it is beyond concept. This resembles something that Eugene Peterson writes about in his book, Working the Angles, the shape of pastoral integrity. He writes that there is more to reading than simply looking for information. He writes, By associating reading so thoroughly with schooling, we are habituated to looking for information when we read, rather than being in relationship with a person who once spoke and then wrote so that we could listen to what was said. Language, of course, does provide information, and books are conveniently accessible containers for it. But the primary practice of language is not in giving out information, but in being in relationship. That primacy does not change when it is written. The primary reason for a book is to put a writer into relation with readers, so that we can listen to his or her stories and find ourselves in them listen to his or her songs and sing along with them, listen to his or her arguments and argue with them, listen to his or her answers and question them. Peterson writes this in the context of describing how the scriptures are this kind of book, but I think Merton would say that it could also be applied to all writing that Christians do, that ultimately, as important as giving information is, our deepest goal of communication, whether that be spoken or, in this case, written, is to put the reader in communion with us as the writer and ultimately with God, hopefully with whom we are in communion as well. I think this is something that fiction has a particular strength for. I have been reading the writings of Wendell Berry recently, his fiction writing um, concerning Port William. And what I'm finding is that whenever I read it, I feel like I am communing with this, this um, beautiful world that he's created, a very restful uh, world that also has its suffering, has its pain, but ultimately is a world grounded in goodness. And I think that Wendell Berry's faith and his... Um, his perhaps communion with God comes through the pages of his stories, even though it's not usually explicit, that um, that sense of goodness is conveyed to me even more than the information and the facts and the situations of the characters. It's that deeper communication and that communion that's being conveyed. And that's what really draws me back to reading his stories again. And so, in summary, 
we looked at some new dimensions to vocation and the purpose of writing that Merton describes in this chapter, The Christian Writer in the Modern World. The new writing purposes were writing as a form of prophecy and communication as communion. And the new dimensions of vocation that Merton identifies is the poet's task of restoring language and the, the universal vocation uh, that we all have to step into our lives as Christ stepped into his, to be who we were uniquely made to be, as well as the, church's the church community's responsibility in helping each other to, to live and to become the people that God has created us to be. As the Apostle Paul writes in the letter to the Ephesians, For we are God's handiwork, created in Christ Jesus to do good works, which God prepared in advance for us to do. I hope you will join me next time as we look at the third chapter of this book entitled On Poetry. Do get in touch and share any comments or feedback or questions by emailing me at foreshadowmagazine at gmail.com. You can also visit foreshadowmagazine.com to read new writings and listen to other work posted every week. If you know anyone you think would enjoy and appreciate this work, do share Foreshadow and Forecast with them. Thanks for listening. That's the forecast for today.